the Sinai Experience, an event etched into the identity of the Jewish people. God's miraculous removal of his nation from the oppressive servitude of ancient Egypt and the subsequent trip to receive the Torah in the Sinai Desert is our origin story. But for many Jews, this story has played a much more powerful role. It has convinced them of the unique truth of the Jewish religion. I'm Avi Cohen, and this is Jewish Thought Flow. Hey guys, and welcome to episode 7 of Jewish Thought Flow. For the next couple episodes, we're going to be doing the Sinai Proof. Well, what is the Sinai Proof? The Sinai Proof is an historical argument aiming to prove that the events of the miraculous leaving of Egypt and the receiving of the Torah did in fact happen as stated in the Torah. We all know the story. The Jews were slaves in Egypt. Moses arrives. The ten supernatural plagues occur. And the Jews are granted freedom from their overlords. After leaving Egypt, they are pursued by the Egyptians and get trapped in front of the Amsuf. The water then miraculously splits in front of the Jewish people, allowing them to pass, and then comes crashing down upon the Egyptian soldiers pursuing them. After this, they are led to a mountain where they hear God speak to them and are then given the Torah with all of its laws during the subsequent years spent in the desert. Now, this is a very fantastic story. It has supernatural elements. It has people leaving Egypt. It has the divine revelation of the Torah to the Jewish people in the Sinai Desert. In the following couple episodes, we are going to demonstrate the veracity and historicity of this story. So let's talk a little about this proof, what's known as the Sinai proof. So up until this point in all of our Jewish Thoughtful episodes, we have dealt with strictly logical demonstrations. A logical demonstration is one where the conclusion of the proof is not merely the most likely, but logically necessary. It's unescapable. There's no other options for the conclusion of the proof. There's not another answer you could plug in that would suffice. The sign of proof is not like this. The sign of proof is what I like to call a rational argument. It means it's more rational than not. It's trying to express that it's more likely this story happened than this story did not happen. And significantly more likely. Enough of a more likely that one would be convinced. However, it is not logically necessary that the Sinai events occurred in terms of the proof. What's a good example of a difference between a rational proof and a logical proof? A logical proof would mean if 1 plus 1 equals 2 then 2 plus 2 equals 4. So there's no other options. It's not like likely that that's the case. That is the case. There's no other options. That is the answer to the problem. Right? However, if I came back, presumably from the grocery store, but if I came home and I had bags of groceries in my hand and I had a receipt from the grocery store which had the time stamped and I said I was just at the grocery store, right? It's not logically necessary that I was at the grocery store. It is possible I printed out a receipt and stole bags and put food in them and pretended I went to a grocery store, but that's not rational to assume so, right? So it's much more likely that I had done that than done all those other things, even though it's not logically necessary that such a thing occurred. Uh, To take it to a slightly bigger extreme, um, if I told you that I was sitting in my room right here, which is pretty far from New York, and I threw a basketball and it scored in Madison Square Garden, right? So that's not logically impossible, Right? We could conceive of a situation where such a thing would happen. I throw it, the door opens, somebody kicks it into a taxi, which eventually ends up on an airplane, 
ends up in another taxi in New York, ends up in Madison Square Garden, bounces on the seats and hits in the hoop, right? That's not logically impossible. It's just very, very, very unlikely. So it's rationally unlikely, but not logically impossible. So the sign of proof is not going to be logically uh, necessary. It's not going to be logically um, uh, conclusive. However, it will be rationally uh, conclusive. For this reason, I first chose to prove the existence of God, the creator of the universe, before we embarked on proving the veracity of the Jewish religion. Even though, by proving the Jewish religion, we would de facto be proving God. However, we did this because the proof of God is logical and absolute. There's no possible way of coming up with a different conclusion like we showed. However, the proof for the Sinai is not logical and absolute, and therefore we put the logical and absolute one in precedence. Furthermore, once the idea of God is firmly entrenched in one's mind, the claim of God's interaction with mankind becomes that much more plausible. Meaning, part of the Sinai proof is the plausibility of the occurrence. So if I can give you important information that adds to one's probability of such an occurrence existing, such as the revelation of God to mankind, so if I can prove to you that a God exists, it makes the revelation to mankind that much more likely. After all, if there's a God and he created the world, it's certainly not unreasonable to assume that he has a purpose for the intelligent beings he created in it. Um, and it's certainly not unreasonable that, to assume that he interacted with those intelligent beings. It might not be logically necessitive, but it's not unreasonable. So that's why we listed the logical proof of God before the rational proof of Sinai. Now, interestingly, even though the proof of the Jewish religion is not as strong as the proof for God, it doesn't need to be. See, there's no action item if God exists. If he didn't interact with human beings, and it's just that he exists, so there's nothing I have to do as a human being. Therefore, me as a thinking human being, if I haven't fully established the proof of his existence, then there's no rational reason for me to take any such position on such. I can think it's likely, but there's no reason why I have to stake a claim. I can always say, eh, I don't know. However, when it comes to the Torah, which is a specific guidebook how man should live, and contains rewards and punishments, consequences, if you do not or do follow it, man has to make a judgment call about the veracity of Torah. You can't just sit back and say, well, I don't know, because you have to make decisions in your life. And by not making decisions in accordance with the Torah, you are saying emphatically, I do not believe it exists. By making decisions according to the Torah, you are emphatically saying, I do believe that it is true and it came from God. So it's not merely a, eh, I don't know, we'll see type of thing. It's something you have to make a judgment call on. So at this point, even if somebody is not a thousand percent absolute about the Torah's veracity, it would still be rational for him to live in concordance with it, providing it's a reasonably amount of uh, uh, a reasonable amount of uh, possibility that it's true. Now, again, it, there's always going to be a sliding scale, right? If it's like point zero 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 one percent true, and I have to change my entire life, that not be might, might not be worth it, right? We all have a chance that um, somebody standing around the corner is about to shoot us. However, we don't live life like that not getting out of our house, even though there is such a chance, because it's not big enough to disrupt our life. So the proof that we're going to be going for is like a fairly rational uh, representation that the Torah is real, enough that a person should be convinced to change his lifestyle in accordance with it so that he doesn't run the risk of avoiding the goal of his life. Um, this all makes the burden of proof for Torah much lower than the burden of proof for God. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the methodology of the proof. I know there's a lot of introductions here, but we need to get all this out of the way before we can actually start in the proof. The method that we will follow for this proof is, first, we'll go through the proof in its most basic, simplistic form. Afterwards, you should be left with a lot of questions. 
and a fair amount of rebuttals. In the following upcoming podcast, we'll deal with those rebuttals systematically. After each rebuttal is dealt with, you'll find that the proof will go stronger and stronger, and hopefully by the end of it, you will agree that the veracity of Sinai story is way more likely and a way, much, a way better, uh, reasonable, more reasonable explanation of the history of the Jewish people than not. Okay, let's talk about the history of the proof, right? I didn't make this proof up. I might have uh, uh, elaborated on it. I've thought about it a lot, but I didn't make it up, certainly. This proof is one of the oldest demonstrations of the truth of the Jewish religion out of any of the demonstrations. The first Jewish thinker to put this proof in writing seems to be Rav Sadia Gon. In his work, Amunus Vadeus, which we spoke about in one of our earlier podcasts, Amunus Vadeus was finished in the year 933 Common Era, so that's a long, long, long time ago. Right, it's about a um, quick math. It's over a thousand, hundred, about uh, close to eleven hundred years ago. However, even though he was the first one to put it out, the most famous proponent of this proof is undoubtedly Rabbi Levi. In his famed polemic, that's the right word, I think, on the Jewish faith, the Book of the Kuzari, that's the book he wrote called the Book of the Kuzari. In Hebrew, that's Sefer Hakuzari. Rabbi Huda presents a dialogue of a wise man persuading the king of Khazar that the only true religion is the Jewish faith. Khazar, for all of you who didn't know, is, it was, it doesn't exist anymore, is a powerful empire around the year 650 Common Era to 969 Common Era, set in what is now the southeastern part of European Russia. It's not set there anymore, but that's where it was. Now, obviously, Rabbi Levi did not write this at that time, because Rabbi Levi wrote this um, after Sadegon wrote in the Munus Deus, and Sadegon wrote in the Munus Deus, Finished it in the year 933 Common Era. So Rita Levi, I think, was after uh, already the turn of the millennium. Um, I can get you the exact date later. So now, during this famed dialogue with the king, the sage, who's the wise man, persuading the king of the truth of the Jewish religion, successfully argues that there's no way the Jewish faith, faith could be false due to what was the, what we call the Sinai proof. So that was the, really the first time, probably the most systematic way it was set down. Has a little bit of a give and take, a little bit of a back and forth, um, and actually... Well, it's a it's a fictional dialogue, but there's a, actually a convincing of a man on the other end, at least in the fictional dialogue. Now, although this proof that we bring is more elaborate than its presentation in those sources we just mentioned, I believe the proof that I will present to you carries about the same spirit as that which those great sages were trying to convey. Okay, I think we've spoken enough about intros. Let's actually get down to the real proof. The Jewish story is the Sinai story. Right, whole nation leaving Egypt, miracles, splitting of the sea, arrival at a spooky mountain, getting the Torah, etc. Our question is, how did such a story get into the history of the Jewish people? In other words, could such a story have fibbed its way into our history? Right? We are the Jewish people. We have this story. There's only two options. It was true or it was false. If it was false one has to explain how it became part of history. If it was true, you don't have to explain how it became part of history because it was true. That's how it became part of history. It actually happened. However, if it was false, it needs a way to get into a person's history. Anybody who believes a lie, there needs to be a way he believes it. Either he thought of it himself and it happened to be untrue, or somebody told him it and it happened to be untrue. So the question is, how did such a story get into our history? After all, we claim that both Jesus and Muhammad fibbed their way, fibbed their prophecies and revelations into the history of their religions that they wanted to start, right? They all have religions, they all have histories, and we, the Jewish people, would like to claim 
that their histories are false, falsified. So why wouldn't someone be able to claim that about our Jewish history? Who says our story is any different? Well, let's examine the histories of those other big religions. So we're just going to stick with Christianity and Islam for now. At a later podcast, we're going to deal with a whole bunch of claims from other religions as to their origin story, which might cause problems for our proof, and we'll deal with them then. But in order to break down the most simple form of the proof, it's important to contrast it with the two other biggest religions, or the two biggest religions in the world, which is Christianity and Islam. So let's do the Islamic story first. So according to Islamic text and tradition, an angel named Gabriel visited Muhammad in 610 Common Era while he was meditating in a cave. The angel ordered Muhammad to recite the words of Allah. Then Muhammad presented those teachings to his followers who would then become the Islamic nation. Right? Muhammad sitting in a cave, doing his meditation. Angel comes, gives him some information, tells him, spread the good word. Muhammad then does it. Now, as a Jew, we obviously would not agree that those were real revelations, right? It wouldn't be very nice if there was two religions with real revelation stories. That would be a very, very confusing world. The simple way to look at it would be that that's just a fake story. But how can we claim that Muhammad falsified his revelation while claiming that Moshe did not, right? Our man Moses had a real revelation. Their man Muhammad did not. Why are we saying this? Now let's go to the Christian story. The Christian story is perhaps no less of a problem. One of the most important moments in Christian theology, as per my quick research online, is the Great Commission. This is allegedly when recently resurrected Jesus revealed himself to his disciples and prior to ascending to heaven gave them the mission of letting the world know about Jesus' divine stature and commandments for the world. So again, Jesus comes back to life on a mountain People who saw him were his disciples. He says to them, hey, I'm now a semi-divine being, God forbid, and please spread the good word to the rest of the mankind. Spread my message. The disciples said, okay, and they went and spread his message with a miracle story, a recently resurrected man who is now claiming to be part heavenly. Now again, how can we accept the Jewish story but reject this one. And we don't want to accept this one, particularly because the Jewish story includes several commandments how man cannot be worshipped, which is a problem here. So again, if we're accepting our story, what makes us say we can't accept their story? So I think the answer, the answer is fairly simple. In both of those stories, there was a common thread. The only people who actually witnessed the miracle, the revelation, the origin story, was the leaders of the religion. In the case of Islam, it was a meditating Muhammad. In the case of Christianity, it was solely the 11 disciples, as per Matthew 28, 16. And they then went and convinced the masses that what they had seen was true and really happened. Now, being as divine revelation to mankind was part of the belief system of humanity, they had no problem believing the propagators of the religion. Right? We believe a lot of things that we don't know for sure. It's just that in our belief system, it makes sense, right? So if a, a man who claims to be a scientist comes and tells you a scientific fact that he says there are experiments about, and you've never searched it up, and you don't know anything, and you see the PhD on his jacket, because he wear jackets that say they have PhD, you would believe it. Why? Because you know scientists know scientific facts. 
you know they have access to scientific facts about the world through experimentation, and he told you something, there's no reason to not believe it. Now, again, you could be skeptical, but why wouldn't you believe it? He's telling you something. Why would he lie? So back then, it was common belief that God could interact and did interact with mankind. Therefore, if a very charismatic, religious-looking figure with a great voice, a great speaking voice, and charismatic eyes, and a smile, and a good storytelling ability, came and told them a story that God had spoken to him. And he has this whole book filled with tremendous teachings, teachings that have wisdom in it, but it's all man-made, but he's claiming God gave it to him. So now, I'm sure there are going to be some skeptics, but there's going to be a lot of people who will believe that. Why should they assume he's lying? Why wouldn't they run with it? The Jewish story is very, very different. The miracles in Revelation in our history were supposed to be seen and experienced by the entire nation. So if they didn't actually witness or experience it, there's no way that lie could have been sold to them, right? Moshe comes back down from the mountain. Well, let's assume he's not on a mountain. Moshe comes up to these random people and says, hey, remember yesterday when you were in Egypt and saw the 10 plagues and crossed the Red Sea to shrieve the Torah? People would just be like, no. And then that would have been the end of it. You can't believe something you know for a fact didn't happen. So if somebody is selling you something about your life that you know didn't happen, you're not going to believe it. Now, they can tell you a small fact about your life that you may have forgotten. If it's plausible, you would have forgotten it. But the type of story that's in the Jewish uh, origin, the type of story that's in Jewish history, which is Moses telling people, you just left Egypt. You just saw 10 plagues. You just crossed a sea on dry land. You just received the Torah. That is not a possible story to tell, sell people who did not actually witness or experience it. Therefore, from the fact that this story has now become part of our history, and Moshe, Moses, was able to get the religion off the ground, tells us the story must have indeed occurred. It wasn't a private revelation that we have to buy Moses' word on. It was a public revelation that all we have to do is tap into our nice little memories and remember it, because it was a huge event a huge series of events that happened very recently. And if it did not happen, no matter how charismatic Moses would have been, he never would have been able to convince the amount of people needed in order to get the religion going. So now, I know this is a very simplistic sort of representation of the proof. I'm sure there's a lot of questions bubbling in your head. Please stay tuned. Next week, we will start getting into all the nitty-gritty of this proof, breaking it down with the rebuttals, with the answers, and slowly this proof will become stronger and stronger, more reasonable and more reasonable, until finally it is the unescapable conclusion, at least the unescapable reasonable conclusion, that the story of the Sinai with the giving of the Torah, the leaving of Egypt, was the actual true history of the Jewish people.